<laughs> it's all right, Joel. Yeah, I also threw Joel a couple of curveballs this week. There we go. You are awesome. Thank you, young lady. Uh, let me tell you, that is probably the, the seat where you have the highest blood pressure on Sunday mornings. So, you know, Joel is uh, tough and tenacious back there for us. We've been uh, celebrating since last Sunday that we are now into the Easter season. We are reminded that Christ died, but yes, he rose again, and he is a living God, and he is alive in us. And so this uh, season and this series that we're going through is looking at life alive, and this morning we're going to look at how there is life after sin. So as we think about what might have happened during our week or over the last month or even in the last year, a couple of years, or maybe you go, you know, my whole life shows all these marks where things went wrong, people did the wrong kinds of things to me, I made bad decisions, and my life is just pockmarked by sin. I'm reminded that... uh, in our culture, we don't, we don't talk about sin much anymore. We talk about people who made mistakes. We talk about making bad choices. Um, you know, we use that kind of, of, of vocabulary, those kinds of words. And sometimes it's helpful for us just to be really honest and brutal and blunt and say, you know what happened there? That was sinful. And then we can address it in the way God chooses to address it. It's not just about correcting the bad decision or undoing or getting a mulligan, you know, to do it over again, a do-over. But it's about something that was really damaged and harmed being forgiven and renewed and revived and resurrected. So to help us in this, I want to read from John's first letter, the first epistle of John and chapter 1 verse 5 we're going to go into chapter 2 just a couple of verses it's really not a long passage because um, the letter tells us about how God has dealt with these things out of his love for us this is the message we've heard from Jesus and now declare to you God is light and there is no darkness in him at all So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin... We're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself 
is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, or maybe I should emphasize that differently, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Amen. You know, when you come to church and you go, man, pastor's preaching about sin, and you just go, wow, this is either going to be really hard for me to take and I'm going to just keep my head down because I know what I've done and I wonder if he knows what I've done. Or maybe you come in here and you go, man, I'm really glad that I am not that person anymore and, and uh, or I'm glad I'm not the kind of person who needs forgiveness of sin. Um, you're probably both going to be a little uncomfortable today. I'm sorry. We have this thing in, in the world where we live, like I said, where we don't really call it sin. We make mistakes, we make bad choices, and um, we pay consequences for bad choices. But we, re- we rarely hear in our culture, when you're out there in the world around us, that people say, well, you know, I sinned. I certainly don't like to say that. I don't like to own up and go, you know what I did? I think that was a sin. So we just don't sin anymore. We just call it something else that might be a little bit more comfortable for us emotionally or cognitively to deal with. But the truth of the matter is when we do things that are wrong, that displease God, it still does the same thing. What it does is still the same. And I have a friend who, he, a pastor friend, Mark, who likes to say something about sin that I think is extremely helpful to me. He says, sin always takes you farther and costs you more than we ever think on the front end. He goes on to describe this in a message that he's preached before that I heard him preach. He said, you know, sin is like a mud puddle. The person who jumps in the mud puddle and rolls around and it gets really dirty. And they come out and they don't look the same and people don't want to stand close to that. And, you know, they've just been in the mud puddle wallowing around and you just go, ooh, wow, that's, you know, it may have been fun for a moment, but there's a lot of cleanup that has to happen there. But the trouble is you don't have to be in the mud puddle. If you're just standing close by, when someone jumps in and starts flailing around, you're going to get splashed on, aren't you? And this is the way it is with sin. So our tendency is to think that, look, I didn't do it, so it has nothing to do with me. And at the same time, when we're standing close to that person that did do it, it does. It gets on us. You know, if you're the spouse that didn't cheat, sin still affects you, doesn't it? If you're the employee that kept their integrity and didn't fudge the numbers, it still affects you, doesn't it? If you're the student that didn't cheat on the test, but others in class did, changes things for you, doesn't it? Especially if they grade on a curve. If you're not the person who cheated on their taxes, but thousands of others do, it sure has an impact. You, you know, just being close by, it, it splatters us. 
let alone when we're the one who jumps right in and goes, you know, I'm going to do this. And here's the other lie that we believe is that I can jump in and do this and it's, it's just me or me and him or her and it has nothing to do with anybody else. You know, one of, the, one of the things that kind of drives me nuts in our culture is when I hear people talk about privacy and they say, you know, what goes on in my own home or in my own bedroom has, nothing, has no impact on anybody else. And I go, are you kidding me? You know, you might think that, but as you live that out in your life, it changes you. And as that changes you, it changes me and our society. And you can't make that claim. Nobody is that isolated that they can say, you know, I can do whatever I want and it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else at all. It always takes us farther and costs us more than we think it will. And then here's the, here's the, the real twist. This is the real kicker when it comes to when sin happens around us or to us or by us is that it takes us farther and it costs us more, but on the front end, it always looks appealing. It always looks like a better option. Let's be honest. You know, for those of us who are racing to finish our taxes this week, man, if I could just change that one number, I don't pay any taxes this year, that would, that would be great. Or I get a nice return. For, you know, that student sitting there in the test and going, man, I did not study this, but I could at least get a C if I look off of my neighbor who probably did study. In that moment, it looks attractive. Or, or let's face it, when somebody who is not our loved one, not our spouse, comes by and smiles and winks and waves and, and it appeals to something deep inside of us and it hits that insecure place and we go, wow, they think I'm good looking or they think I'm attractive. And in that moment, it feels like, boy, this would be really nice to have that feeling just go a little farther And then it takes us into places that just cause all kinds of heartache and damage. Takes us farther, costs us more. All right, I've I've done the downer thing now. We're all discouraged and depressed because our world is a filthy place to live. But when we're talking about resurrection, we don't belong there. And so for you, wherever you're at, whether it's done by you or splashed on you, I don't care. You don't belong there. You were not created and crafted by God to live with that in your life. And you don't have to. You don't have to. So here's the thing. As we read this passage where John is writing this epistle and he talks about how Christ has done this incredible thing and it changes the reality that we live in. And, and, and he says, you know, if we claim to walk with Christ, we walk in the light, not in darkness, because in him, what did it say? How much darkness is there? Anyone remember? In him there is no darkness at all. There's no shadows. There's no shade. <laughs> In Christ, there is light and there is no darkness. In the world around us, though, we notice that there is light and illumination and we can see things and then there's darkness and and the darkness just 
can be at times inviting because I could hide there. I could, I could gain some cover there. I could be overlooked there. But in the darkness, you just there's nothing to see. And so I will stumble there and I will fall there and I could be a victim there in the darkness. And that is not what Christ does. Christ comes to shed light. Um, I didn't add it and uh, onto our screen. And some of you have probably seen this before, but, but there are satellite pictures from outer space of the world at night, um, different parts of the world at night. And if you look at a satellite picture over the Korean Peninsula at night, uh, some of you have probably seen this. So South Korea, it's just lit up. I mean, South Korea is entirely developed, and it's a, a highly developed country, and uh, there are bright lights shining at night. They've got all kinds of street lights and so on, and it looks really bright. And then you, you could literally draw a line where you go into North Korea, and everything there is dark because they don't have enough power. Things don't work, and... It is a system and a country and a regime that is steeped in sin. I'm just going to be honest. It's a, it's a place where one family has dominated and pushed themselves to the point of being seen as God. And anything that refutes that is suppressed and executed and killed, including God's people. And so they paid this horrible price because their country has been wallowing in that pit. And it is physically dark because they have no money and no infrastructure to actually turn lights on. But even more importantly, it is spiritually dark there. And so you know what happens when the sun goes down in North Korea? Nothing. Nothing. They are stuck. They are hopeless. They are incapacitated because if I go outside, it's dark. I could trip on the curb and fall down and hit my head and die. So we don't do anything after dark. We don't do anything because we have no way of redressing, of of handling what might happen there. So when it comes to light and darkness, when darkness really rules we become incapacitated. And that happens physically for the North Koreans. But for many of us and for many of our friends and people that live around us, it can happen to us spiritually where we have no, I have no idea what to do because I've come to the place where I'm incapacitated. I don't know whether the next decision I make is going to make things better or worse, so I will make no decision. I'll do nothing. And John says, that is not God's people. God's people walk in the light and their, their way is illuminated for them and they can keep moving. The psalmist refers, in these very, refers to this in very same terminology when he talks about the word of God. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So as I understand your word, it somehow reveals reality to me and I can safely move forward at least the next step and the next step. That's light. And John says, in Christ, there's no darkness at all. Everything is safe, it's illuminated, it's, it's, it's known. Then he goes on and he says, the, the, John says, you know, but when we say we're without sin, but sin's still there, we're deceiving ourselves. We're not deceiving God. God knows. And oftentimes, even though we don't want to accept it, 
So does everybody else. I've, I've always thought this was fascinating, that people who live their lives in the brokenness of sin think they can not only deceive themselves, but all the rest of us too. And I'm not trying to be down and belittle somebody who, who is caught in that horrible place. But it's always been interesting to me that people will come in and they'll act as though we cannot tell there's something wrong. Years ago, I had a young wife and mother come to me and talk to me as pastor. And, and we were sitting in my study and we were talking. And as she sat there, she said, Pastor, there's some things that I think I need to tell you. And I said, okay. And... And she said, nobody knows this about me, but I'm a mess. And sometimes I'm a little bit too open and too, too much disclosure. And I started laughing. And I go, yeah, we know. <laughs> and she looked at me and she was horrified. And I think she was hurt. She goes, I'm a mess. And I just said, yeah, we know you're a mess. I started laughing about it. And she goes, what do you mean? What do you know? What do you know about me? And I go, oh, I don't know what you've done. But I know what you do. I know the way that you talk to other people in the church and the way you talk to me. I know the way you interact. I know that you shy away from things. I know you get overly aggressive at times. And that, that doesn't look healthy and normal. And, and so when you say you're a mess, we go, yeah, we know you're a mess. We don't know why. We don't know what the exact circumstances are. And we probably don't need to know. But we can tell there are things that have happened in your life that have, that have changed and scarred and marked you up. And that's why, you know, when somebody's a little bit short with you, you get really defensive. And that's why when things don't go smoothly, you get a little panicky. And that's why, you know, when I kind of went on and described a little bit of her character, and she started, she started just crying. She goes, do you think everybody knows? And I go, we know nothing about the circumstances. You can tell me about the circumstances, I guess. But we don't, I don't know that we need to know that. What we know is that you're broken. She went on to just reveal a couple of pieces to me. I prayed with her. She still had a lot of problems. And, and after I left that church and went to take another church, uh, her whole story just kind of blew up. It blew up her marriage. And all this stuff came out. It came out in a very public way because she was in the public light to the, her job. And it was ugly. She didn't tell me all this stuff. And not only did she not tell me that, but she continued to believe the lie that if I keep it quiet and people don't know, it'll be okay and it started leaking out. <laughs> it just started getting away from her. She couldn't contain her sin. And it hurt her husband, and it hurt her son, and it hurt her job. She had to quit her job, and she had to make restitution. And, and her deceit was really deceiving herself first into thinking that I can cover it all up. I can put frosting over this, and people will think it's a cake. And it's not. So he says, John says, you know, when we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But then he flips that around. He says, but when we confess our sin, Christ forgives us and it changes us. And then he adds this piece and we have fellowship with each other. And I got to tell you, this is the most... Uh, 
counterintuitive idea that I could ever share with you, this idea that if we confess our sin, then all of a sudden it's okay to approach. It's, all of a sudden we have people around us that care because if I tell you what I've done, I think I'm going to repel you. That was her issue. She thought, if I tell pastor everything, nobody will ever talk to me again. In the meantime, she's learned that that's not the case. That the people who were willing to put up with the, the foibles and the rough edges were the people who were willing to walk with her when all of the ugly came out. I'm going to come back to the fellowship piece because we need to unpack that a little bit more, our understanding of what fellowship really is versus what Scripture tells us fellowship is really like. So hold on to that thought. But here's the thing. Christ wants to make our lives clean and clear. That's why we went through this ritual and we prayed these prayers and we said, God, you know, make me right with you. If something happened this week, I, maybe I did something, said something, thought something, and it displeased you, but I can come again to you and ask you to cleanse and revive and resuscitate and even resurrect that that's gone dead. You see, Christ washes us clean. I don't understand this. I got to tell you, I do not understand this. I know there's some psychological things to this that when we are forgiven for something, what it does to us emotionally, I, I, I get that. And a few years ago, actually it's about 10 or 12 years ago now, the American Psychological Association, APA, put out a paper on how they, they came to the point where they said that forgiveness is actually a psychological remediation. It's something that you can do to help you psychologically. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. I think, I think scripture told us that you know, a couple thousand years ago. But it's more than just you know, our, our emotions and our minds. It's, it's about us no longer carrying that spiritual burden, washed, clean. And once again, it's not just the sins that we have committed, but sins that have been committed against us. And Christ can wash that clean and clear the clutter that that brings. I've told this story before. Every time I tell it, it's just like I'm standing right back there in that playground at Park School in McPherson. I was in the sixth grade, and my friend was Will Cramsey. And, and Will had some rough edges, and he came from a rough family, but he was one of my friends, and, and we played together and horsed around together. And, and recess was over, and we were supposed to be getting in line to go back into the uh, into the classroom, but we were still out on the playground. It was a beautiful day. I can remember you know, all the details. It's still vivid in my memory. And Will was in front of me, and somebody behind me shoved me. And they pushed me, and I, I didn't have a chance to look back and see who it was. We were just horsing around as middle school boys horse around. And he shoved me, and I bumped into Will, and Will staggered forward and in that moment, I don't know what I triggered in him or what the circumstances even triggered in him. But for some reason, Will spun around without saying a word and punched me right in the face. 
it, it was the first time anybody had punched me in the face, and I was shocked. I was more than the physical pain to looking back. I mean, I did. My mouth was bleeding, but I don't remember hurting that much as much as going, what just happened here that my friend, Will, turned around and slugged me and drew blood? And in that moment, it, it didn't even dawn on me to turn around and go, who shoved me and you should have slugged him? In that moment, I looked at him and he looked at me and there was anger. I mean, there was anger on his face. And we turned around and walked into class and I got to the door and the teacher stopped me and said, she said, what in the world did you do? Because I'm bleeding. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, what do you mean, what did I do? Somebody shoved me, he slugged me, I'm bleeding. And so she hauled me out of line, took me down to the nurse's office, and you, a lot of you have been there. You know how this feels. And then I went immediately from the nurse who put an ice pack on my nose and my mouth. I went to the principal's office and the principal. And, and okay, you know the code, right? You know the code. So I'm not going into the principal's office going, somebody shoved me and Will did this and that, because you know, then you know, things are just going to get worse, that right? That's what I thought. So I said, somebody punched me. Who was it? I'm not going to tell you. And I, you know, I did that whole thing and uh, got suspended. I, I was not Will's friend after that. Surprise, surprise. And that opened me up to violence. That sounds really simplistic. You go, Pastor, what a trip. I mean, how did you go from that? But here's the thing. Somebody punched me, and I got blamed for it, and I got punished for it. And I decided along the way that I was no longer going to be the guy taking the punches. I was going to be the guy giving them. Now, in your life, it may take a different form. I'm not going to be the guy getting stolen from. I'm going to be the guy stealing. I'm not going to be the one cheated on. I'm going to be the one doing the cheating. I don't know what that looks like, but that's what happened to me. And so here's the thing. As the years then progressed from sixth grade through my junior year of high school, I was aggressive. I was quick with my temper. And in my heart, I wanted to be feared. And what that brought with it was all this mess. All this clutter, but somehow my junior year of high school, through another whole set of events and another story that I won't share today, God got through to me and I said, God, I do not want to be that person anymore. And I asked for forgiveness and there, was, there were a couple of men in my life that, that were there when I did that. And I'm thankful for them and it was hard. Because they, they confronted me about the way I was acting. And not just about what I was doing to other people, but what was going on inside my heart. And I asked God to forgive me. And when I did, the, the guilt that I carried of everybody that I'd lashed out at and punched and pushed around and hurt was removed. I'm still friends with a lot of those guys I was in high school with, and, and some of them think it's remarkable. When I became a pastor in my 20s and, and then got onto Facebook into my 30s and connected with these people from 
all around the world where we've spread out. And they go, you're a pastor, really? <laughs> and uh, some of them are just like, wow, you've really changed. And you know what I've noticed? A lot of them have changed by God's grace. Last night, Kayleen was sharing with me a, a, an update in social media from one of her cousins and how he had shared a song. And she goes, isn't this amazing coming from him? You remember? Remember what he was like? And he's, he's sharing this wonderful song about Christ. And I, I said, yeah, that's great. I, and then later, as I was thinking about my message, and I go, but, you know, I have people probably halfway around the world, remember, halfway around the world saying, remember what he was like? And now he's a pastor. And, and my friends that interact with me from then, that go, you know, he's not the same guy. But I am the same guy. Just the same guy, forgiven, washed clean, cleared the clutter. And now, walking in light and in life. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't stumble and I don't fall. It doesn't mean you don't stumble and you don't fall. It doesn't mean that people don't do things and we go, okay, I can go back to that right now. But we understand life in different terms and we navigate life in different ways because we are no longer bound to that sin. There's an old hymn that we sing from time to time that has these words, and I remember these often. In, this, in the hymn we sing, it says, Lord, take away our bent to sinning. So don't just take away the clutter and clear things off, but take away our propensity to go that way, our inclination to lean in that direction that when life happens, we lean toward something that's ugly. Instead, Lord... Shift our orientation, change our inner being so that when life happens, we have a bent toward you. And we walk in light and because of that, we walk with life. I told you I was going to come back to the fellowship thing. So here's this thing with the fellowship. We have a tendency to think of fellowship in terms of coffee and donuts, right? We're going to have fellowship. That's, that's Christianese for having a party. We're going to have a time of fellowship. That means we're going to eat and we're going to drink and we're going to laugh and it's fun. But I think in terms of, of scripture, fellowship takes on a lot of different meaning and, and different facets that go beyond this. In fact, the word that's used for fellowship in Greek, koinonia, it has a lot of depth to it. It's a wonderful word. But here's the thing. When we have fellowship, we have this relationship. We have ties. We have interaction with other people that is meaningful and deep and, yes, even life-giving. So as resurrection happens between us and God because he frees us from sin and he breathes life back into dead places in our lives. But resurrection also happens through God's people. And some of you have experienced this. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because when we're around God's people and they help to bring light and they help to bring forgiveness, then they do things in our lives that bring life to keep moving, energy to move forward. And so I'd, I'd like to think of it this way. Fellowship means lifting, sharpening, and empowering. We lift people up. We sharpen them for service. Remember that iron sharpens iron scripture? And we empower each other to follow God in better ways. This is why I think 
uh, life groups are really important. This is why I think spending time with each other outside of this room is crucial. I need that. There are days when I need somebody just to lift my head, my spirits, my emotion. Encourage me so that I can keep going and say, Pastor, you're doing the right thing. I know you need it too. I need people to sharpen me that say, you know, what you're doing isn't working so well anymore. Things have kind of grown dull. You need to sharpen your tools. You need to knock off some rough edges and you need to refine the way we do things so that we do them in ways that are effective and bear fruit. And then we all need to be empowered to be reminded by one another that we do not do this alone. We do this with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We do this with the power of God's people allied with us, standing right beside us. And so life together helps us to really live. Life together is a life that really lives. And so here's the thing, that that fellowship thing, I mean, coffee and donuts don't hurt. I mean, unless you eat a lot of donuts. And cheesecake doesn't hurt. Amen, girl. Uh, You know, there's a... I'm going to digress a little bit. Thank you. Um, But, you know, I was sharing with my sister a while back. We were talking about having coffee, and and we drink a lot of coffee. And I told her, I said, you know, coffee is a spiritual thing to me. And we got into this whole discussion of rationalizing the theology of coffee because we just like coffee. It tastes good. And And we went through our routine in the morning and how we do this, and it's part of our... But you're right. I mean, there are days when a slice of cheesecake is a slice of heaven. But it's more than that because there are days when I can have all the cheesecake alone and be miserable. You see, the fellowship that he is saying, and we will have fellowship with one another, means that we open ourselves up to one another. There's this passage in in 1 John that I, I like to quote it from time to time, but I don't like to quote it widely because I think if we started doing this all the time, it would scare me to death. But, but John says we should confess our sins one to another. Because there's something about going to that trusted friend who knows and loves Jesus and say, you know, this is what I've done. This is what's happened to me. This is how I've been bent and changed and twisted. That that friend can go, okay, let's not live there anymore. Now, if we do that all the time with everybody, it gets really, really scary. I mean, who wants to be standing in line to go to the cashier at Walmart and somebody goes around and goes, hey, you know, I committed adultery last night. (laughs) I mean, nobody wants that, right? I'd be going, I think this line's a little shorter, you know, move over there. But, you know, with that trusted friend, with somebody that we have walked with to go, you know, this peace in my life is just, it just has an anchor. You cannot break those chains without the power of God and the fellowship of his people. 